Welcome back to the Taking Back Motherhood podcast, where I hope you find inspiration and encouragement to embrace your maternal instincts and blaze your own unique trail through motherhood and through life. All right, so let's get started. Kiara Lee, thank you so much. Welcome to Taking Back Motherhood podcast. I'm so excited for this conversation. Um, I've been following you online for a while, and I love learning from you, and I'm sure all of our listeners will as well. So let's just start out by giving everybody a brief background on you and what brought you into the space of um, wellness coaching. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to finally jump on and and record this episode with you. It's going to be so fun. Uh, Yeah, so a little bit about me, I guess. um, I grew up in Southeast Queensland in Australia on on a cattle farm, so always kind of out in nature, very connected. And then yeah, I graduated high school and went on to study a Bachelor of Psychological Science, went on to then study my registered nursing degree, got to the end of that, and I got a, a scholarship to study at a, at a really good university, but it was actually located not where I lived, and it was located in the city. So I went, I left my rural country town, and I moved into the city to do my you know, big girl career, and then I got really, really sick, and I had absolutely no idea why. I did not understand. It was pretty much instantly. Like as soon as I moved the next week, I became extremely, extremely ill. And wow, I know the now next what... week. Wow. Yeah. 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 I went from being really vibrant and high energy to then suffering with fatigue, vertigo, like, and I'm talking chronic fatigue. Like it was really hard for me to even just cook a meal. Um, severe brain fog. I've always been very, I guess, academically gifted, kind of like a picture, picture perfect memory. And then I went to Brisbane and I couldn't even remember what I had just read in a book the day beforehand or even an hour beforehand. So wow. my, yeah, my memory was really, really poor. And so that was really hard. And then, yeah, I kind of learned about quantum and circadian health through, you know, the online space and, and started studying that. And this was back in 2020. And this is kind of when COVID kind of happened. And so I kind of decided to make a, a leap of faith and I changed my career and I became a decentralized health clinician um, yeah, and now I work with the modalities of quantum and circadian healthcare and help women optimize fertility and reverse infertility. That's probably, I guess, 50% of my clientele. And then I'm also reversing chronic disease such as fibromyalgia, uh, severe memory cognition problems, like those types of things. So yeah, it's a little bit about me kind of through my own experience that I found quantum and circadian healthcare. And now I'm fortunate enough to share that message with the rest of the world. Yeah, it's amazing. We need more of you. So that's awesome that you're able to um, change gears a little bit. Um, All right. So I'd like to start with talking about circadian health and our light environment, because from what I've learned from you following you online, it seems that our light environment and what we consume in terms of light really affects the rest of our life when it comes to diet and nutrition and exercise, that if we're not in the correct light environment, that those type of things may be not a waste, but not as beneficial. So let's start with that and just kind of a brief, like where to even begin, what does all this means about circadian health and what can people do to implement it? Yeah, exactly. That's, yeah, that's exactly right. You know, if we're not looking at our light environment, perhaps the modalities through nutrition and other things are not going to be as powerful and impactful as they once were. But I think we can really start with just understanding that light is also a nutrient. Like we only really think about the food we eat being nutrients, but the light that we're around really impacts our health as well. And isn't that so funny that we think about that with plants, but not with people, right? Like, of course, you can't 
grow most plants without light, but we don't really think about that as much with humans. It's just interesting. Yeah, exactly. It's like you put a tarp over a tree and it's not going to grow because right. there's no light. So there's no photosynthesis, but we, we do the same thing. We have human photosynthesis, which we can talk about a little bit later, but yeah. So it's just really understanding that light is a nutrient and light affects our physiology. And it makes so much sense when, you know, I um, have a lot of Christian friends and this makes sense to them as well. I say, you know, if you are a woman of faith or a man of faith, you understand that this world was created perfectly for you as it was originally before we came in and kind of changed things and invented the light bulb. And then if you believe in evolution, then you know that and you believe that this world kind of evolved with us and not against us. So as the world was evolving, we were evolving, you know, we were growing from a little uh, organelle into who we were today. And, and so how could things like, you know, our lighting environment not be important? Right. Exactly. Yeah. So I like to kind of uh, use a little bit of an analogy to explain for anyone who's like hasn't heard of quantum and skating health before and that's pretty much the entire population so I kind of say like just as I can grab my phone and I'm like oh it's 4 42 a.m right now and my consciousness can understand that time my body doesn't actually run on that time so my body runs on nature's time and it tells time through the light in my environment so all day long we have frequencies coming from the sun from sunrise through to sunset and these aren't stagnant and they're not just a, a stagnant blend. These blends actually change all day long. So we don't see like, you know, hues of red, blue, UV, infrared coming from the sky or the sun. We just see illumination. But it truly is made up of all these different frequencies of light. And so in the morning, we get a very specific blend of light frequencies. And that's actually very high in this infrared light, which is very healing for the body. And then at midday, we have this really high UV, which is going to raise our cortisol, keep us awake. And then at nighttime, in, at sunset, we have this lack of blue light in our environment. So that really, my body takes that signal. My body reads that light in my environment and says, okay, there's no blue light in Kira's environment right now. That must mean that, you know, it's coming towards nighttime. Kira needs to get ready to put out her melatonin and make herself sleepy so that she can go to bed. And then on the uh, other side of that coin, in the morning, when we're getting this infrared light, it's really stimulating our body to do things like upregulate cytochrome 4 of the of the electron transport chain, which makes water. And we know through the work of Gerald Pollack that this water isn't just like water that's in my bottle, like liquid water like this, although it can be. It's actually this crystal four-phase water, which is truly interesting. So a little bit of background here, and I'm deviating kind of from the topic, I'm sorry, but this is, I think it's really fun and important to understand. So we always thought that we only got energy from food and that our mitochondria were the powerhouses of the cell and they created ATP. And then ATP was the energy currency of the body and that's what gave us energy. But this actually isn't true. ATP only gives us about 20% of our energy and it folds and unfolds proteins in the body. It's still really important. We definitely need it. But we actually get a majority of our energy from this four-phase crystal water. So in this electron transport chain in the mitochondria, we actually produce water. We're told that in biology and nursing school, I got taught that the water that the mitochondria made was just a byproduct and that the light that the mitochondria made was a byproduct because mitochondria make light, water, ATP, and CO2. We're focused on ATP. Turns out the light, water, CO2 are actually the most important parts and they're not actually byproducts at all. Just so interesting to think about. But basically, we're making this metabolic water, right? And at the same time, 
our body's actually also producing this light, this infrared light. So this metabolic water actually lines our cells and it becomes charge separated. Where does it get the energy to charge separate? It gets it from the infrared light. And so it splits this water. So the water, you know, we think about water as the two Mickey Mouse ears, the two hydrogen and the oxygen. That's a water molecule. That's not the type of water that I'm talking about. So it takes that and it splits it. So all half the water is up against one side and that has a really high negative charge. And then it pushes all the positive charge out. So now we have these two opposing charges and that makes a battery in our body. And it puts battery, it puts our energy at the disposition to the cell. So much so that Gerald Pollack and his team, they got um, little tiny baby wires and they put them in each side of the cell. And it was actually enough to run an LED light bulb. Oh my goodness, so, wow. Yeah, we really know that this actually is energy and it's usable energy. And so how this came to be was uh, through the work of Gilbert Ling and old professor Gerald Pollack was actually fortunate enough to meet him. And he was so fascinated by his work that he decided to quit what he was doing, which was he was studying muscle contraction at the time. And he decided to study water research instead. And so he got a, he kind of recreated some of Gilbert Ling's work and he found that through the use of microspheres and you know beakers and things in his laboratory that he could actually create this exclusion zone water. So that's this water battery that I was talking about, the charge separated, different from the two Mickey Mouse ear structure. Um, so yeah, he was able to recreate that and he was scratching his head for so long. He was like, okay, so I need energy to create energy. So if this water's charge separating and it, I know that it's giving me energy because I, you know, I can test it, I can test the voltage of the water and I can see the change. Where on earth is this water getting the energy to charge separate itself? He's like, I'm not putting any energy into the water. How is this happening? Mm -hmm. And so he had an undergrad student a few years after he found this in the laboratory. And I think he was just bored one day. I'm sure you've listened to the episode where he goes into this, but uh, he just grabbed the light, the little lamp that was sitting next to him in the, in the office. And he kind of put it over the top of the water and he saw this exclusion zone dramatically increase by tenfold. So this exclusion zone was able to increase with light. And so Gerald Pollack went in and he realized, and they did more experiments, that it was actually light. So the water was utilizing the light and taking the energy from the light to therefore charge, separate and make energy. And our body does the exact same thing. So I find that truly fascinating. So, yeah, I mean, we really need to understand that the light we're around is impacting the energy deep in our body. And so if you have no infrared light in your environment via indoor living, via having a ton of blue light on, you know, incandescent bulbs they've just been uh made illegal actually in california but in because they're energy inefficient but they're actually energy inefficient because they're giving off infrared light as heat and so they said that was a waste of energy so now they have these led lights which apparently are energy efficient um <laughs> which is a long conversation but yeah they don't have any infrared light at all so now we're sitting inside under these lights that give us no infrared light. We're in front of blue light screens inside and we're just not getting the infrared light that we need to structure this water. And so that's really impacting how our body runs in terms of how much energy we actually have. So that's a little, that's just one of the ways that light can impact our health. Wow. You explained that really, really well. I did listen to yes. your interview and, um, and it was awesome, but the way that you just kind of like unpacked that for me was great. Um, and so, and I think it also really explains very well, a lot of times when we think about circadian health, at least for me previously, 
I associated it more with people who have trouble sleeping at night. So I'm like, okay, if you have trouble sleeping at night, you should probably not, you know, look at your phone a couple hours before bed, make sure you're seeing the the light throughout the day so that your body knows it's time to go to sleep. But for somebody like me, I've never had a hard time falling asleep or staying asleep. Or even now with little kids, my daughter still wakes up during the night and wants to nurse and then I can fall right back asleep. So I don't have an issue with that. But you explained that that's really not the only reason that we need to be concerned about our circadian health and our life light environment. It's the entire energy producing system in our body that requires it. Um, and so I, I'm personally curious. Um, I've been trying to make more of an effort of getting outside first thing in the morning. So you really talk about like seeing that first sun, watching the sunrise. Um, and then you spoke about the midday sun and the evening sun, how they all have different um, benefits. What are your thoughts on if you wear glasses or contacts? Because I do, and I'm severely nearsighted. And so I'll try, especially in the morning to go outside without my glasses. And if I take a walk, I have to like put them on and off so that I don't run into somebody. Um, but are we still getting, I've heard different people say different things on this, that the glasses actually help to um, focus the light better going into our eyes. And then other people say that, no, you're totally negating any benefits if you're wearing glasses or contacts. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. And then also LASIK surgery as a potential um, alternative. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, so sunglasses, I'm not a big fan of them because they block the UV. Well, not even um, sunglasses. No, I just mean prescription. You're talking about prescription. Yeah. Are you talking about prescription glasses? Yeah. Right. Prescription so, glasses. Yeah. I mean, I'm a purist in the sense that I don't think we should be having anything between us and the light that's coming into our skin or our eyes, because although we don't really know exactly how it affects the light frequencies, I know that it would affect it just like the light you know, light shining through windows blocks infrared light and we're actually getting an intensified blue light through that. So I think glasses have a similar effect. They do block the IR light and I think that it it would change the light frequency in some way as well. So I'm very big on not waiting for science to catch up, although mm -hmm. it's doing a great job at doing that. I kind of believe that the common notion is the further we get away from nature, the worse things seem to get. And so I'm a very big advocate for no glasses on. So if you have glasses, I think personally, um, and through my experience working with clients, taking them off and watching that sunrise, you know, I don't think that anyone should really be staring right at the sunrise. <laughs> Please don't do that. But maybe just looking like to the left or 40 degrees to the right or something like this is, is good. So we really want to get that light in our eyes because uh, we have, yeah, so we want to get it in the most pure form. So no glasses, taking your contacts off and be safe. Maybe sit down and then take them off if you can and then maybe put them back on and, and go inside especially for sunrise, because we have these uh, aromatic amino acids in the backs of our eyes. And so these aromatic amino acids, and I don't want to get too technical here because I you know people's faces will just glaze over and they're like, I don't know what this guy's talking about. <laughs> but basically, you can think of like a, a hoop, like a basketball hoop and a ball. And so the sunlight is like the ball and you want that to go through the hoop. And the hoop is the aromatic amino acids. So they literally sit in the backs of our eyes and they capture photons of light. So light energy is carried in photons. So it literally captures this light just like a ball going through a hoop and then it takes this light and it converts it into other things. For example, melatonin. Uh, we all know, well, uh, most people who are into quantum and circadian health know that artificial blue light at night time, it decreases that melatonin. But that's all well and good. But if you don't actually have morning sunlight, you can't actually create melatonin in the first place. So melatonin is actually made in morning light. 
So melatonin actually is stored AM sunlight. <laughs> I know that's so crazy to say. I didn't know that. But it truly is. And it's actually first created when uh, an aromatic amino acid called tryptophan with its little benzene ring sitting in the backs of our eyes, grabs that photon of light and then converts it to serotonin. And then later in the day, serotonin gets converted to melatonin. And then melatonin, once it's done its job in the morning, gets converted back to tryptophan. And so that's that little cycle mm -hmm. of what's happening there. So you're basically capturing this light, moving it through the body, and then you're just like kind of, yeah, adding more fuel to the fire in the morning. And so if you, it's all well and good to block the light at nighttime, but if you're not getting this morning sunlight with no glasses, no contacts right into your eyes, that's going to be a big problem. Um, yeah, so I guess that's my answer to that. And LASIK surgery, definitely not a big fan. I think it really uh, impacts our body's ability to pick up certain light frequencies uh, as well. I know that a lot of clients I have now that have had LASIK surgery and it's quite unfortunate trying to repair some of the damage. I know there is a new procedure done uh, that's an alternative to LASIK surgery. I think it's been out for about five years or maybe three years now. It's called a, a smile surgery. Huh, I haven't so heard of that. Yeah, so it's done a little bit differently to LASIK surgery. I only know because I was talking to a doctor a few weeks ago about this and he had it done. <laughs> and just before his surgery, because he's a big uh, advocate for quantum health and sunlight and things like this, just before his surgery, he kind of came across this space and he's like, oh my gosh, I cannot get LASIK surgery. So then he was looking into alternatives and found the smile surgery and he, he uh, went from having negative four vision to now having better than perfect with this. And he actually says he's able to absorb more light because the way that it works is a little bit different to LASIK surgery and I won't go into it because I'll butcher it. But for anyone who's yeah hasn't got LASIK surgery, I definitely recommend looking into the smile procedure yeah. because I think it's less invasive and it's yeah it actually helps you absorb light right because it's fixing that that programming in the eye yeah it definitely will I am negative four actually and my son is actually negative eight and a half and he's mm. only five so wow. I'm not looking into surgery for him but um definitely trying to research and it's very difficult to find any information out there on how to help heal his vision naturally because if he's already at negative eight and a half at five years old. I mean, I can't imagine that it's going to get better on its own if we're doing nothing than just, you know, having him wear the glasses. Exactly. It's, it's can be quite concerning and really hard. And this, this doctor that I was talking to the other day, he um, was only negative one and he's a, a, like he's a professional athlete. So he plays tennis and he's played tennis his whole life and traveled. So with his negative one vision until he was like, and quite successful. So, you know, it's not means to say you can't live a long and happy, happy life be successful then when he was 12 it started to dramatically decrease every time he would go back into the doctors and get his eyes tested it was like another 0 0.5 another 0 0.5 mm -hmm. until it kind of leveled out at negative four now he said that he actually was able to improve it by doing things like at sunset um he was watching a candle for 10 minutes every single night because that infrared light is going straight into the eye so it's very healing it helps us like repair our eyesight like literally I've had clients halve their prescriptions via implementing morning sunrise into their life for six plus months um, with adequate hydration, with blocking the artificial light. You know, we actually need to be able to repair ourselves. And I mean, this is a conversation that I'd love to get into, but if you don't mind. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I'm like at the edge so, of my seat. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and hopefully the sunrise is here soon so I can turn this red light off. But uh, 
So I love to use the analogy in my hometown because I live in rural southeast Queensland. There's these old men at this local pub and like we kind of go down a pub or a bar or whatever you call it in America, a saloon or something. I don't know. Yeah, a bar usually. <laughs> a bar, yeah. So, uh, you know, we go there for dinner sometimes with my family and there's some live music. But I see all of these old farmers and they're like 85 years old and they're so healthy, but they're drinking and they're smoking and they're eating seed oils and they're eating so many carbohydrates at like eight o'clock at night. And I'm like, how on earth are you doing everything wrong, but you're still so healthy? And I know that you're going to get up to work tomorrow morning at 4.30 with so much energy, work all day on a farm and then come home and do this whole thing again until you die like mm-hmm. how are you so healthy and it's because we've gone from this generation of people who actually were able to repair our bad cells to not being able to do that so the difference between the farmers and us is that they actually have a good circadian rhythm so you know a lot of their houses are on a farm they don't have much artificial lighting around they're exhausted from working all day so they eat food and then they go to bed at like 7 30 8 o'clock they sleep all night and then they're up with the sunrise the next day. Us, you know, we're working till like, you know, bedtime, nine o'clock at night. Maybe the kids have gone to bed. You're like, oh, I can quickly, you know, edit this or reply to this person. And we're on this blue light. Children are on this blue light. And so what this blue light is doing, you know, we spoke about at sunset, the absence of blue light in nature. And so that's really signaling to our body that it is dark time. We're getting ready to run cell repair processes like apoptosis, autophagy. And so... Uh, I guess we kind of think as melatonin as this hormone that makes us go to sleep, but it actually does so much more. And we actually need the right levels in our body to actually run because it kind of governs these cell repair and cell removal processes. So if you don't have enough melatonin, like these actually don't happen. And so it's like, okay, what suppresses melatonin? Well, that's actually blue light. So blue light in your environment, which is there during the day, raises your cortisol, which keeps you awake. So that's kind of how that works. And you can think of melatonin and cortisol like arch enemies, like they don't want to be in the same room. They're kind of like on a seesaw. So most of the time, uh, every time you're raising cortisol, in turn, you're decreasing your melatonin. So at nighttime, when our body is actually outside and is able to sense that absence of blue light, that's when that cortisol decreases and then you get this nice rise in melatonin at the same time. So three to four hours before bedtime, it's at a really high level We actually can run these cell repair processes when we're sleeping, right, that are going to do things like take out your bad cells in your eyes and and repair them and and get rid of that little skin cancer that's starting to develop that you don't know about. And, you know, our cells are replicating all the time. So if we have damaged cells through environmental toxins or stress or injury or acute chronic disease, uh, we want to take them out before they keep replicating and keep making more of themselves. So that's why we really need to be running these processes every night. You know, it's the equivalent of cleaning your kitchen before you go to bed and then you mm-hmm. wake up and everything's clean and it's happy right. days. Yeah, you don't do that. that. You kind of wake up and you're like, oh, I have to do the dishes before I cook mm-hmm. dinner and da, 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 and it just piles up and piles up until eventually you have nothing left. Yeah, exactly. And it's so a perfect analogy. Exactly. And so that's the difference between us and them. So we can get away with doing a lot more during our day. We can get away with a lot more environmental toxins. And, you know, if you look back in the, we get told a lot, you know, there's so many chemicals in our food. But if you look back 100 years ago, we actually put some crazy, crazy things, I'll say things, in our food. And we were actually able to detox them because we had these processes. But Mm -hmm. now with the introduction of modern lighting and this technology era that has us all on our phones right before bed exposed to this blue light, we're just not able to do that anymore. 
So, you know, this is very important for people who are perhaps working in like a mining a mining uh, workplace. They're exposed to all these things in the air. Anyone who's an office worker is getting a lot of damage from the artificial lighting during the day. You know, it's really important. We can handle these things a lot better if we just allow our body to sense real darkness again, just as it would, you know, 200 years ago. And yeah, so that really is the difference, to be honest. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I think you touched on two really important things um, about the farmers, definitely the light and then also the physical work that's lacking mm-hmm. from our society these days. It's like, you know, most jobs, you're working your fingers and that's about it. Everything is computer based. Mm-hmm. And then we've put ourselves into a position, you know, not obviously for everybody in the world, but for areas from when, where you and I are speaking from of just continuous comfort. We're in like 70 degree environments all the time. Like we're not outside Mm -hmm. in the elements too much. Like the majority of people, I think basically go from their house to their car, to another building, back to their car, back to their home. And they maybe take a walk. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Seated, not doing a lot of physical work, not exposed to nature and the light. So I think there's a lot of things there. Um, But you mentioned melatonin, um, a lot there. And I just wanted to ask, what are your, I wanted to a little bit later in this conversation, get into some conversation about supplements, but melatonin in particular is very common, I think, for people to supplement at night. And then even for kids, what are your thoughts on supplementing with that? Yeah. I mean, I believe that short-term supplement of melatonin, uh, in relation to your specific circumstance is okay. But I think that anything longer than a week is definitely doing your body a disservice, right? Because, you know, it there's nothing more makes me more upset than children who can't sleep and then they go to their primary care physician and then their primary care physician prescribes them melatonin. Because one, you're not actually addressing the root cause. You know, why can this child not sleep? Why are they not looking forward to sleep? What's the problem there? You really need to address that first because supplementing is not going to fix that. And then over time, it's just going to get worse and worse regardless because uh, you haven't actually you know, addressed anything wrong with their lifestyle or diet. You're just putting them on a supplement. Two, this supplement is actually extremely bad for their health. So it actually destroys their retinal health. So it stops their body's ability for kind of like, I guess, repairing their eyes. And yeah, so it's really bad for that whole system. Um, and I believe this is why there's a big correlation between children needing to wear prescription glasses and taking melatonin supplements, which usually go hand in hand. Interesting. Um, Yeah. So it's definitely not good for health. It's also, you know, use it or lose it. So if your body's not actually making melatonin and then you're going in and putting artificial melatonin in there, which isn't created the way nature intended, it's completely vibrating on a different level and everything like this, but uh, your body is going to even further diminish the amount of melatonin that you're making intracellularly because, you've got it you're you know you've been given it so why would your body then go put effort into making more it's like you know they say don't feed the wild animals because then they'll get so used to you feeding them that they forget you know how to source their own food and it's the exact same thing our body does the exact same thing and it's kind of like with what you're talking about being uh seated all the time it's like you need to keep using your body and build that muscle memory so yeah that's a few problems with melatonin And then it's like also addressing, you know, if we actually didn't have melatonin, I think that a lot of people, we didn't have these supplements that kind of fix the problem for a period of time before other symptoms emerge, like poor eyesight and fatigue and all these things. It's like, if we actually just address the root cause, I think we'd be so much further ahead in science when we're not trying to cheat nature and we're not trying to take the easy way out. It's like, okay, why is my child not sleeping? Are they overstimulated? 
Do they have too much screen time? Do I perhaps need to turn these lights off at night time so that you know my my child can actually get the melatonin needed to make them feel sleepy? Are they not getting morning sunlight? So the circadian rhythm is just all over the place. Mm -hmm. You know, when we see sunrise, it kind of starts a timer off in our brain that gives us, you know, depending on what season it is, 10, 11 hours before we start to go to sleep. So that's that secondary timer as well. Temperature is also a secondary timer which you touched on, so we can talk about that too. But, yeah, I'm, I'm not an advocate for melatonin. I think it's very harmful for children's health, and I think, honestly, you're doing a child a disservice by giving it to them. Um, but I also do understand, you know, I'm quite compassionate in the sense that I know that parents are busy. They're all trying to make an income, you know, you know have mum and dad out in the workforce, which um, perhaps is a good thing, perhaps is a bad thing. So sometimes parents don't have the energy at the end of the day to then deal with a child who's not going to sleep. Mm -hmm. So then melatonin might be, you know, something that just keeps their household running. But in my opinion, these conversations need to be had more because then parents are given the education needed to actually make better decisions for their family and their health. Yeah, absolutely. And just for the record, we don't supplement with melatonin here. So my son's nearsightedness <laughs> must have been from something else. Um, and yeah, I mean, <laughs> what you said too about if you go to the doctor and then they just tell you to supplement with melatonin because they're masking the symptom instead of getting to the root cause of the issue. It's like that basically sums up all of our modern medicine today. It's mm -hmm. you go to the doctor, what kind of prescription can they write you? They really have no, to me, no interest in figuring out the root cause of what the issue is to actually fix it. It's just, here's the medication that you're going to take for sometimes forever. So that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, but. exactly. I think that the doctor's kind of presume that you know because they have all this education that we have the right same education that they do and to be honest like no doctor would even know half the things that I speak about well actually no I learned this from doctors so they do but a majority of the centralized physicians they have no idea about circadian rhythm and just the impact that that has on our health overall but you know they presume you have all this education that going to sleep at the right time is important that waking up on time is like important that eating real food is important but we actually don't know that there's such a disconnect with our health education that we receive in school. And so they've kind of, I guess, dispersed taking the time to actually teach you these things. And so it's much quicker for them to just write a prescription and, get, and give it to you because they're presuming that that's the answer that you want. I mean, I had a doctor from India book a call with me the other week and I was like, why did this lady book a call with me? But she just wanted to tell me that they actually went through retraining. So she just graduated her internship and now she's a practicing doctor and she can work on her own. But she had to go through retraining and they were actually taught that they can no longer prescribe diet and lifestyle changes to people who came into their clinic. Yeah. They had to write wow. pharmaceuticals only because the the program administrator was saying that uh, if a client's coming to you or a patient's coming to you and they're describing, you know, symptoms of chronic mm -hmm. fatigue and you know that lifestyle changes and diet changes could help that, uh, if you tell them that, it'll make them feel uncomfortable. And it's going to increase their chances of uh, developing poor mental health. And, yeah, that it's not your place to to prescribe those types of changes. And instead of forcing judgment, because they said that that was judgmental, uh, you need to just listen and then prescribe a medication to fix that. And it's up to the individual whether they want to implement diet and lifestyle changes. And so I thought that was so eye-opening. I was like, Absolutely. wow. And she okay, was practicing so in India, you said? Yeah. So she lives in India. Wow. She's a beautiful yeah. lady. Yeah. I mean, I know in the US <clears throat> and probably everywhere, basically everything is so run by money. So mm -hmm. the 
pharmaceutical companies fund in large part um, medical schools and the type of information that these doctors or potential, you know, doctors are learning. And then also there's a whole system of doctors getting money from certain pharmaceutical companies for prescribing a certain drug. So there's not really much incentive to get people better. Like I do think that most doctors I'll say have a good heart and like they actually want to help people, but there's just no incentive to have somebody healthy and never come back to them. There, There's money in keeping people on medication. And I also think it's not all the doctor's fault. Like I have people even in my own family who would much prefer to just take a pill than actually implement any lifestyle changes, like simple as mm-hmm. getting up and going for a walk every day. Like, no, I'll rather just take this pill and go get a shot in my back every day or every whatever mm-hmm. month, because I have these problems that could easily be fixed by, you know, stretching and exercise. So uh, you know, it's not, I can't put it the bl- blame all on the doctors, but it's kind of frustrating exactly. all around. Um, yeah, I think you kind of touched on an important component there. Like when I was in school in university, we were doing a, a nutrition subject and uh, I couldn't believe it when I heard this, but and at the time it didn't really sink in until now when I look back on, on that, on that conversation, I'm like, oh, wow. So that's what she was actually like alleviating. I mean, alluding to students class and the teacher said, okay, so Our task today is, hypothetically, we found out that sugar is bad for children. Children should not be having sugar in our tuck shop here. So that's like the school, I guess, I don't know, shop service so children can buy their lunch from school. Yeah. Right. So the cafeteria. Yeah, that's right. That's what you guys call it. (laughs) So, yeah. So we found out that sugar is bad. Our cafeteria has way too much sugar in it. Like we are selling ice blocks, you know, sandwiches with high sugar content. So what are we going to do to get this sugar down? Well, We've analyzed all of the products and we found out that 50% of the sugar is available to children in soft drink. So what what should we do then? And then all the students put up their hand and they said, you know, we should get rid of soft drink and replace it with water. And the teacher said, that's a great idea. Now let's look at the implications of that. She said, okay, so when we do that, we're actually decreasing the amount of soft drink sold. And the people that uh, fund that soft drink, people that own those soft drink brands, they fund all the sports equipment for the school. So we can't do that. So in order to get the funding for the equipment, we can't stop selling their product in the cafeteria. So what else can we do? And she kind of spoke about that in great detail. And I didn't really think, I didn't think as deeply as what I am now about that, but I was just like, wow. Yeah. So they're actually invested in these places. So if they got rid of that, then they won't have sporting equipment and they won't have money to fund their sporting activities. And so, you know, that money has to come from somewhere. If it's not coming from the governmental body, it's going to come from somewhere, right? So it's kind of like two sides of the coin now because they're invested so deep and it's just really built modern society in the sense that now a lot of these organisations run, uh, I guess, even McDonald's, you know, they run the run a McDonald house. And so they're doing good for the society, but they're also doing bad. And I think that's kind of like subsidies, you know, when, when uh, like, let's say there's a national park near me in my town and it's been protected for years. And so they wanted to take part of that national park out and make a housing estate. But in order to do that, this same company has to then go buy property somewhere else and turn that into a protected estate, hmm. into a protected estate to kind of offset the damage they've done. And so I think that's also built into the school systems and into our whole structure as society, whereas people are getting away with doing bad as long as they do good somewhere else. Right. Wow. Yeah. I mean, we could go into a whole conversation about all of this. This is awesome. Um so yeah, you were definitely on the same page. Um, I want to stay on topic a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. 
let's get back to, I mean, you, you were getting to it anyway with talking about sugar, but let's talk about um, diet and nutrition a little bit. And I want to focus this, I'm sure a lot of what we're going to talk about is going to apply to everyone, but I want to focus a bit on women because I think that's the majority mm-hmm. of our listeners. Um, so I want to just kind of go step by step through the stages of preconception, pregnancy, postpartum, and then getting closer to pre and postmenopausal. And what are the um, important things that we should be, um, you know, uh, bringing into our diet. And then if there are any, if you have any particular views on, it's like a polarizing topic, but veganism, carnivore diet, you know, just the 80, 20 of having a balance and having a little bit of everything. Like what is your particular philosophy? Because I know that um, there's arguments for most of these across the board. So let's just touch on maybe overall nutrition, what your philosophies are, and then we can go stage by stage through um, the women's health and nutrition. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's such an important topic to cover. And to be honest, um, I'm not too exciting when I talk about these topics, because for me, it's like, essentially diet is simple, but us as humans with these Ferrari engines in our head, we decided to make it very, very complicated. As with everything, right? (laughs) Yeah, it's actually not that hard. So I believe that we should be eating food that's local and seasonal to us. So carbohydrates aren't bad as long as they're growing in your environment. So, you know, what is a carbohydrate? It's something that grows when the UV is high. Hence why if it was snowing here in winter, there would not be any carbohydrates growing because it's too cold. The solar yield is too low to yield that carbohydrate. So therefore I should not be eating it and I should not be, you know, I'm residing under that same light. So that light is actually controlling my metabolism in terms of how my body is actually getting ready and getting prepared, how my metabolism, my internal complexes are getting prepared to break down certain foods. So when there's a lack of UV in my environment, uh, and this will get complicated for just one second, sorry, (laughs) it actually down-regulates cytochrome 1. So if you can think of like four holes in an electron transport chain, which carries so food gets broken down into electrons, um, and then they basically result into our mitochondria and they kind of pass through a chain. And so carbohydrates predominantly get put into uh, this whole one, so complex one, and fats and proteins get put into complex two. And now this isn't just a straight line. It can kind of get rearranged depending what season we're in, you know, what signals we're feeding our body. But if we're under high UV, like let's take high UV, it's a lot easier to understand. So it's summer here in Australia. It's really, really hot. I have high UV. This complex one is upregulated. And that's because we're getting ready to digest carbohydrates. And I'm talking about carbohydrates that are like real food. So anim- um, not animal foods, but, you know, plants and fruits. I'm not talking about Hungry Jacks or McDonald's or right. bread or pasta. Mm, or not processed foods. <laughs> that's a different conversation. But so, yeah, so you can think of it as like, you know, the food that's growing local and seasonal to us is like a piece of a puzzle. And then our body's the other piece. And when we eat food that's local and seasonal, it's like these two pieces of the puzzle fit perfectly together. Now, when we eat food that's not local and seasonal to us, like let's say, I live in Wyoming and it's snowing and it's been winter for four months. There's no carbohydrates, but then I fly in a banana from Northern Queensland, Australia to eat because I like bananas. That's like trying to put together two pieces of the puzzle that just don't quite fit or match. And so that's going to create inflammation inside of our body. And we know that the more inflammation you have, it's just the overall higher chances of systemic disease. So that's one problem. So I think that carbohydrates are fine if they're local and seasonal to you. So then just staying on that, 
Sorry, just staying on that for one second. So like, for example, mm -hmm. I've, I live in Connecticut, so it's winter right now. We're not growing anything. You can get local meat but and eggs, <clears throat> and even eggs are not produced um, as much during the winter. The chickens don't lay as many eggs. So would you mm -hmm. suggest then that during the winter we only eat meat and eggs? Or what about also preserving food, people who can fruits and vegetables? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's a great question. I think that we look at squirrels and they can preserve nuts, which are high in fat, right, uh, to get them through the winter. I think that we've evolved a lot of good uh, modalities. We've picked up a lot of skills as people to preserve, you know, fruits and vegetables and things like this. But even, you know, 200, 300 years ago, we weren't able to preserve as much uh, fruit and vegetables as we can today. It just wasn't possible. So I think that in terms of optimal health, I think that you really need to be leaning into seasonality. So in Connecticut, I know you have children, so it can be a little bit harder in a family, but optim optimally speaking, it's like you want to be eating meat. You want to be going into ketosis, right? So our body can actually burn our own fat and recycle that as fuel. We want to be having a high fat diet, things like this, because um, that's going to go hand in hand with what's happening in our physiology. Um, but in saying that, I know it can be hard. So even just doing things like, I guess, sauerkraut and, you know, just really minimizing the amount of carbohydrates that you have is a good thing. Um, you know, in wintertime, if we're eating a lot of fat, that actually produces more metabolic water in our body. So if we have more water, and we're talking about water being a body battery, and we also have more infrared light, because when we get cold, our mitochondria actually produce more light. So we have more light, we have more water, that's actually giving our body more energy. So when we actually embrace seasonality, we don't see this deficit in energy like we once thought because we have this secondary battery that we can run off. Um, of course, we're not all outside now, just laying in the snow or hiking to get to our new camp for like whenever. It's just a bit different. But so we really need to be start, start to think about leaning into the seasonal changes and knowing that, you know, the temperature in our environment, the light in our environment, the food in our environment and our body are all connected. And when mm -hmm. we connect all those things together, it's like we're able to tap into these ancestral pathways that we've had built into us for hundreds of thousands of years. In saying that it is modern life, I know I have a, had a client say, well, if I just turn the heat on inside and, you know, I'm always warm and I put it like a spurty lamp on, a UV lamp, can I eat carbohydrates? And I was like, no. <laughs> yeah. No, you can't. Um but not everyone, you know, wants to be optimal and that's like so okay uh, in today's society, you know. At the end of the day, we're all held accountable by free will. So we can know these things. Like I know that technology is bad for me, but I'm still on a laptop right now doing an interview with you before the sun's even risen. So mm -hmm. it's just our own choices that get to dictate life and that can be a very big responsibility. But it's also empowering because now you're like, okay, I have the education that I need and now it's up to me to implement that or up to me to understand how my environment works that I can make the decisions to best suit me and, and what stage of life. I mean, if you're younger, you can get away with a lot more. And yeah, so that's my kind of explanation of that. So I think uh, local and seasonal it, eating is extremely important. Yeah. And then it's also what you touched on earlier too, about our bodies have, a rare, they're very good at detoxing. So it's mm -hmm. not as if like, if you're not doing everything to the T right every single day, it's maybe okay. Because if you are trying to optimize in the areas that you're able to, because we do have to go back to like real life, like, unfortunately, the majority yeah. of the jobs that we have today are sitting and looking at a computer and we have to do what we can to make money and feed our family. But like, 
the things mm-hmm. that you can are are within your control getting outside in the morning even if that means getting up a little bit earlier like um you know eating seasonally as much as we're able to all of these things to even if you're not quote like optimal health you're trying your best to get toward that and i think that's just what we're all trying to do um exactly and when you have your light environment right like i was explaining if you can get away with this a lot more mm-hmm. and you know i something else that we can get into um when we're talking about you know postpartum prepartum health uh something that women don't really know about uh because it's not spoken about in the mainstream system because there's no pill to fix it there's no pharmaceutical yet yet. they're actually working on one (laughs) but there's something called leptin resistance so 86 percent of the population are leptin resistant and this is a massive massive problem so when we're leptin resistant we don't burn fat as a fuel source And so this is actually very empowering for women to understand, especially if they're struggling with weight gain or just a heavy fluctuation in weight, because this was me my whole teenage years, my whole early 20s. I was like, wow, I don't know how one month I can be 65 kilos. The next month I'm 55. Like I'm underweight now. And I I just don't know. I didn't understand, you know, I was eating the same food. The more that I worked out, the more weight that I put on. I just just didn't understand what was happening. And Mm -hmm. then I learned about leptin resistance and I reversed it. And I was like, oh, wow, this makes so much sense now. And now I've seen, you know, 50 plus women reverse this and they've all had the same outcome. But so leptin resistance, what it is, is basically we used to think that uh, the only thing that raised our insulin was the food that we put in our mouth. So if we ate a big bar of chocolate or we ate some carbohydrates, this raises insulin in our body. But turns out blue light does the exact same thing. So artificial blue light at nighttime, what that's doing to your body is it's cutting a hormone called ACTH. It's cutting it, so cleaving it into different parts. It can become lots of different things. It's uh, creating cortisol out of that. So it's upregulating our cortisol. So when cortisol is raised, it's going to upregulate blood glucose levels and it's going to upregulate your insulin. So now we know that it's you can be like literally have no carbohydrates. You can be eating a ketogenic diet, but if you're sitting under bright LEDs, you're literally doing the exact same thing to your body as carbohydrates. It's Wow. Exactly. And that was so big to understand. I was like, wow, this makes so much sense. So office workers all day that are sitting under blue light and they constantly need to snack because they're feeling so stressed. You know, they're already working stressful jobs. Now they're under blue light. That's making them even more stressed. No wonder why they have chronically elevated blood pressure and blood glucose and insulin. And we're seeing a rise in diabetes. It just makes so much sense to me. So basically leptin's a hormone and hormone is secreted by, I'm going to do it. I think I'm going to do a good job at explaining this in a simple, <laughs> in a simple way, <laughs> but stop me if you need to ask questions or you okay. want me to go for something this is this is the hux of health like this is something that everyone can do and everyone needs to reverse and then you can get away with a lot more like eating carbohydrates out of season so that's the reason you should be listening to me talk about this because you can eat more carbs if you're left insensitive <laughs> so um that was the fuel to my fire anyways that made me reverse this uh, so leptin's a hormone and it's made by our white fat cells so our adipose tissue so the more white fat you have on your body the more leptin you're going to have now, leptin is supposed to dock to a hypothalamus at every night just after we go to bed, so around 10 p.m. here in Australia. And so it would be really hard for my brain to keep track of every cell in my body and all the, all the fat that's stored in my body. So it kind of uses leptin as like a signaling molecule. So the more leptin my body senses through like some very complex signaling, uh, my body can make the decision and knows that, okay, Kira's been eating a lot. This last week, she's got a lot of adipose tissue. She's got a lot of stored energy, except for my body always wants to be homeostatic. So it kind of wants to sit within a very specific range. 
And so leptin can dock it to my brain. My brain knows, okay, Kira's eating a lot today. She has a lot of stored uh, fat on her body, uh, stored information. So the next day, my body can upregulate my metabolism so I can burn off the excess energy and it'll decrease my hunger hormones so I'm not as hungry. And that's kind of like how that works and vice versa. So if I don't eat during the day, I have a really big day at the office, then my leptin signals to my brain, okay, tomorrow Kira's metabolism needs to be lower because she doesn't have enough energy and we need to increase her hunger hormones. And that's the how metabolism works in that sense and the energy homeostasis works on our body. But in 2023, with 85% of the people of our population not actually getting this signal, it's a big problem. So if we become leptin resistant because uh, we have a chronically elevated insulin, right, if we're on blue light devices all night and our insulin's raised or, you know, we're eating lots of sugar at 9 p.m. at night or even if we're stressed, if you're stressed, this same thing will happen through a process called gluconeogenesis where your liver will actually just pump sugar into your bloodstream out of thin air. So it was like all these things come into play. It's not just the light. It's like stress as well, emotional stress. So you can think of, uh, I like to think of this as the two guys, one girl situation. So you can think of leptin and insulin as like two guys and your hypothalamus is like the one girl and they mm -hmm. both want the one girl. So it's a competition. And insulin is like this tall, dark, handsome guy who like owns a house and he's got a really good job and, you know, he wants to be a great father. And then leptin is like a guy who's like, you know, uh, just got fired and lives at home with his mom and he's balding prematurely and, <laughs> and all these things. So Love it. As long, <laughs> yeah, as long as leptin's around, the girl, the hypothalamus is always going to choose insulin over leptin. So... What's this meaning? It means that at nighttime, if insulin is around, that's going to dock to the hypothalamus instead of leptin every single time. It's kind of going to overpower it. So then our brain is just not getting this signal from leptin. So we really need to work on decreasing the insulin in our body um, over nighttime. So this is why I'm very big component of it's not just what you eat, it's when you eat. So you need to make sure that you're not eating after sunset so that you're giving that three hours for your insulin to come down so that leptin can dock. Um, I'm a big component as well for no blue light after sunset because we need, you know, we need that cortisol to be down. We need that melatonin to be up. We need insulin to be down. We need leptin to be up. So that's kind of how that works. Um, now, leptin is not just important for, I guess, uh, metabolism. It also runs every single hormone in our body. So you can think of uh, leptin as like the conductor. And every other hormone is like the orchestra. So they're kind of like waiting on leptin to tell it what to do. So it literally is the master controller of all your hormones in your body. Leptin also selects what uh, egg cells are used for fertilization. So you really need to make sure that you're not leptin resistant, so that you can choose the most healthy cells uh, for fertilization that your child has because start to life. So, yeah. And also, so when you, the flip side of that is if you're leptin resistant, your body gets so used to using the fat burning, I'm sorry, the sugar burning pathway that it forgets how to use to burn fat. So it literally does not understand that you have fat on your body and that it needs to be burnt off. And it also over time doesn't understand that you can actually use fat as a fuel source. So you can be eating fat, like let's say I'm, I go on a ketogenic diet and I'm cutting down my carbohydrates and I'm eating lots of fat. And I'm putting on weight and you're like, why am I putting on weight? Like I'm doing keto and it's because your body doesn't actually know that fat can be used as a fuel source. So it's just storing it and storing it and storing it. Um, and it's kind of running on autopilot. So, you know, 
this isn't always the case. Sometimes in my case, it's like, okay, so then it automatically flip, flips to fat burning and I'm burning fat like crazy for a month. Then all of a sudden it flips back to sugar. And so there's no uh, happy medium. It's just kind of one extreme to the other. And so women who are going to their doctors and they're looking to, uh, you know, either gain or lose weight and then their doctor puts them on a calorie diet, like, okay, you need to eat two and a half thousand calories a day, this app, you can track it all on. And then they're being gaslit by their doctor because a month later they go back in and they're like, I've been sticking to this diet, I've been doing it properly and I'm putting on weight or I haven't lost any weight. The doctor says, well, you mustn't be doing it properly. And mm. I've heard that story again and again. And it's because they don't understand that our environment, like even non-native EMFs through my phone or my laptop, will drive my insulin response. So, wow. All right. So if I'm hearing you properly, just to recap a little bit before we move on. So mm -hmm. um, our light environment, meaning getting the proper mm -hmm. amounts of light in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, no blue light after sunset, if you can help it, don't eat after sunset, um, eating seasonally, and then um, you touched on one other thing. What the heck? But basically, it all goes back to the light environment and your circadian health, right? So you're saying all of these things that are you're optimizing, you're eating the correct nutrition. But if you're not gap, if you're not in the correct light environment, um, it's not going to work. And then reducing stress was the other one that I was thinking of. Um, yeah, exactly. Okay. So now let's just go a little bit into, let's say you're eating seasonally. So maybe you don't even, and sorry, I just wanted to touch on one thing too. You keep mentioning carbohydrates, but I think what you're referring to when you say that are fruits and vegetables and maybe starches like potatoes and rice. You're not referring to necessarily bread and cakes and things like that. I think a lot of times we, when we think about the word carbohydrates, we think about more like bread and pasta and sweets, but those are technically <laughs> processed foods, not necessarily what you're talking about correct me if I'm wrong no that's correct I don't I don't eat um like pasta and things like this I do sometimes because I'm leptin sensitive so you know if my mom's making dinner like this I'm going to eat that because I can and I can get away with that whereas if you're leptin resistant like you have less room to play so if you're leptin sensitive you can get away with so much more and it's actually quite fun because then you can go out to dinner and you can eat this and maybe have a wine every now and then so it may impact your physiology but yeah I think that um you know, wheat and things like this, they're, they're heavy in so many toxins like glyphosate as well. So mm -hmm. I would just rather not eat them and just focus on eating food that's made by photosynthesis. So food that's actually made by the sunlight rather than processed food, because I just think our bang for our buck in terms of metabolizing that food and what we get at the end of the day is just not worth it. And I've been hearing a lot about folic acid recently and how the majority of the population can't process it properly. Um, and that is in the majority of flour. So unless it's organic or specifically not enriched or fortified flour, mm -hmm. then you're going to have the folic acid, which can't be um, um, digested properly by the majority of people. Um, so then you're right. It's adding into a whole other level of um, consuming chemicals and things that are foreign to our bodies. Um, mm -hmm. So now going into um, like the different stages of um, of our lives as women, are there any specific things that we should be making sure that we're consuming for preconception or pregnancy or postpartum? And then that includes supplementation or are you like basically against supplementation and we should be getting all of our nutrients from food? Yeah. So I believe, I believe that we should be getting all of our nutrients from food. There's no reason why we couldn't. Um, so many people blame nutrient deficiencies on um, our body's inability to be fertile or you know to just have energy 
I don't believe that to be true because if you look at our ancestors, they did not run out of energy regardless of the food that they did or did not have. So I think that the lack of energy really comes down to a disconnect from our environment and a chronic rise in inflammation. But um, yeah, so I think I think that's that. And then in terms of different stages of life, I think that women in 2023, right, we're around all of these toxins. Like let's say you're like, yep, Kira, I understand everything you're saying. I agree with you that these, you know, radiation coming from our phone is bad. And I, I agree with you that we should be eating seasonally and that blue light's bad. So now I know that I have like this toxic load in my environment, but um, what can I, what can I do about that? So I think that eating seafood is quite controversial because of the heavy metal component. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been posting about that a lot on my Instagram, but I mean, let's start with this study that was done. So a gentleman named Michael Crawford, who's been studying DHA. So DHA is what we get from, it's an omega-3 fatty acid that we get from fish. It has uh, 26 carbon bonds, which is really, really important um, in terms of how light interacts with that. But so, yeah, we we, we get it. And basically they're saying that um, the reason we were able to actually evolve as humans and become so smart is when we started eating DHA. So we started eating fish, essentially. Um, And so he completed recently two systematic reviews where he basically got all of the data um, that, so anyone who had ever studied the correlation between women uh, eating seafood during pregnancy and then the outcome that has on the children. And he got that all together and whether it agreed with what he said or he didn't agree with what he said, he went through it all. They analyzed them all, made sure that only the best articles were chosen to be studied. So I think that left him with, then they started with 42,000 and they ended up with like 9,000 or something like this. It could be wrong. But basically they studied over 100,000 mother offspring pairs and they found absolutely no correlation between heavy metal toxicity and increased seafood consumption in children, which is crazy. But when they studied uh, heavy metal toxicity from plants, that was a real thing. So if you're eating heavy metals from plants and from soil, it interacts with that body a little bit differently than fish. And I believe that's because uh, fish also has some different things in it. So it could interact with that body a little bit differently, but this DHA is really important. So they also found that the more seafood, and this was not capped at any point, it was like the up and to the right, the graph, like the more seafood that parents, that the mother ate during pregnancy, the higher the cognitive outcome was for the children and the higher their IQ score was. It was an average of 7.7 IQ points increase when the mothers ate seafood and then the children ate seafood growing up. And I think that is just so profound. And then looking back, you know, on my childhood, I'm like my dad worked as a fisherman on a trawler. And my mom was always feeding me seafood. I was eating seafood so much as a, as a young child that I stopped eating it when I was a teenager because I just couldn't. I just was like, I've had enough seafood, Dad. Like, I'm done. So, and I look at, like, my intellectual capabilities in terms of my grades in school, and I was a straight-A student. I'm like, I wonder if that has had a, had a correlation. I'm, I'm sure it did. But so, yeah, DHA is really super important for brain health, for making these connections in our brain, um, and obviously increasing cognition, like we just spoke about, but yet... Uh, the fish is being told to be avoided by pregnant women because of the heavy metal toxicity, but that's actually not the case. Um, And if parents are worried about heavy metal toxicity, you can eat small reef fish. So things like, I guess, tuna are heavier in metals. Shark, swordfish is very heavy in metals. But then if you get these smaller reef fish, like let's say perch or even um, crustaceans, like the shorter the lifespan, the shorter the heavy metals that are in them. And I guess the benefits, even if you still want to believe that you know, metals can be a problem. 
the benefits outweigh the negatives in any way. But again, there was absolutely no. This wasn't like 10 children they studied. It was 100,000 children, mother-offspring pairs, so multiple children. And they showed no damage to either the mum or the child and only neurocognitive increase, so only good benefits the more seafood that they ate. Wow. I don't know if you're familiar with um, Dr. Rhonda Patrick at all, but she's a huge proponent of eating salmon roe during pregnancy. And yes. um, yeah, and she like has all the studies on it and everything that I'm not going to even try to go into because I won't remember, but if anybody's interested in looking that up. Um, so then there, there's the debate between um, caught, wild caught fish and farmed fish. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so um, I definitely believe that wild caught fish is better because I don't know if you've seen these fish farms, but they're pretty crazy. Um, some of the salmon that are farmed don't actually even look like salmon because they're so mutated from the antibiotics. They're kind of just these things swimming around and then they chop all the bad stuff off the outside and they chop up the fillets and that's what you're eating. I don't think that that's good. I don't think that that's energetically healthy either because that fish is not happy. So you're then consuming that vibration. You know, we actually know now that, and this isn't hippy-dippy, that your feelings, how you're feeling actually impacts like the oscillation of your frequency and your cells in your body. So mm -hmm. if you're feeling really bad, that's going to give your body a certain frequency and then you're consuming that. So I don't think that that's, that's good um, at all. But wild-caught fish, big advocate for that, um, especially, yeah, you know, salmon's very high in, in DHA and so are oysters. Okay. So very big advocate for those two things. Great. Um, and so if you, I know you don't have any children, but if you were to be pregnant, would you take any supplements at all or just get everything through food for you personally? Yeah. Um, so a big part of my work is fertility optimization, because I believe that in 2023 with all these toxins, like we really need to be setting ourselves up to, for optimal health so that our children can have the best, you know, place to live for nine months mm -hmm. and help them thrive and support them. So I think that I don't really have any supplements, but I think that definitely working on your health two to three years in advance because we inherit all our mitochondria from our mother. So the mitochondria we were talking a little bit about before is like what creates energy for our body. And so that is essentially what our children are going to use. So if our mitochondria are bad, so our engines are not running good, that's what we're going to pass on to our children. And that's as good as those mitochondria can ever be. So if our mitochondria are broken, which we're seeing a lot happening now with the increase in disease in children, that's impossible to our children. They're just starting life off on the wrong foot. Um, and also something to note is the fact that uh, mitochondria pass down through your female lineage. So when I have children, my mitochondria, sorry, my children, <laughs> also my mitochondria, are going to be more optimized to suit the place in which my female lineage has resided and evolved in. So if my family is all from Europe, uh, you know, in a place where it actually gets cold, my children are going to be designed, their mitochondria are optimized and more tolerable to cold. So therefore they need to do things like get cold uh, to make sure their mitochondria are healthy. That's Whereas like let's say if um, I was from India, then my children would be more optimized to get hot. So, yeah. And how far back does that go? Like just Pardon? to your, how far back does that go? So like my great, great grandparents, I should know where they come from because that's going to help to optimize my children or is it just in your mother 
Yeah. I mean, it sounds so crazy. I want people to like freak out, but basically if you're embracing the seasonality of your environment, that's fine. But if you are someone like, let's say Indian and you're going to go live in Alaska, that's a big circadian mismatch and that's not going to work. And that person's actually going to be quite ill. And this is such a big trend, but so you can actually get your haplotype tested. So your haplotype is I guess your mitochondrial heritage and I got mine tested. So mine was like LN6, which means I'm from uh, like Ireland essentially. So my mitochondria are optimized to get quite cold. Hmm. Um, so it, it just kind of depends. Like if you, you, we're all from Europe in Australia, we all migrated here not long ago. So none of us are actually meant to be here in a winter that only makes 10 degrees Celsius. So you can get that tested. It just depends. I don't really know too much on it. You can research the work of um, Dr. Doug Wallace. He's the person who did a lot of mitochondria research and he found out that we actually get a mitochondria solely from our mother. That's so interesting. Um, and it's called a haplotest? A haplotype, yeah. So you can test your haplotype. But uh, yeah, so I guess say my ancestors spent 100,000 years in Europe, my mitochondrial DNA is going to be optimized. Well, my mitochondrial haplotype is going to be optimized for that location. So hmm. it just depends how you evolved really. And I, I can't really say because perhaps your grandmother your great-grandmother lived in India, but then her mother and her mother before that came from Europe. So we just, yeah, we just have to get it tested. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, all right. So I, as I said, I follow you on Instagram and I see a lot of posts of you eating raw eggs and raw meat. So I want to talk about <laughs> that a little bit. Is there a reason, like, does it do something to the nutrients when you cook it negatively yeah. affected? or And then also, what are your concerns, if any, about contaminants? Yeah. Um, your followers are definitely going to think that I'm crazy. I'll put some cheese on now. <laughs> That's all right. They probably already think I'm crazy, so it's fine. <laughs> That's good. We can be crazy together. Um, so I eat raw eggs. I eat the raw egg yolks. Um, and so when I'm really busy, uh, I you know wake up in the morning and I know that eating breakfast first thing is really important to bring my cortisol back down. So I you know kind of put a few raw egg yolks with some raw milk and a little bit of honey, and I mix that up and I kind of drink it. It kind of tastes like a vanilla milkshake. Um, I couldn't do the egg whites because it's just a weird consistency and I just can't do that. So in terms of raw eggs, like that's what I mean when I'm eating raw eggs. Um, I wouldn't just, you know, I actually tried to drink free raw eggs one day and I nearly vomited because it was just <laughs> so disgusting. I do the same. I put raw egg yolks in my coffee and I blend it up. Mm. Um, but even that people are like, what about salmonella? You're going to die. And so, mm. I mean, I'm pretty careful about what type of eggs that I get. Like I'll only exactly. get organic pasture raised preferably local if I can find it, make sure they're not too old. Like if I crack it open mm -hmm. and the yolk is like already watery, I'm not going to eat that one raw. Um, mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's all about like the environment of the the chicken and if there were any contaminants and how it was um, like how the farmer basically, what's the hygiene of the chickens and the, their environment. It's not like all eggs have salmonella. So, I mean, I suppose that there is a risk, but um, I, I guess it's a choice. But the thing that I'm I'm like confused about is the meat because I've always been so like ingrained is you have to cook the meat to a certain temperature. Otherwise you're going to die because it has the, you know, contaminants. So, and yeah. I was actually telling my husband recently, I was in um, Paris for a short time and it was a very, very common um, dish in restaurants was beef tartare, which is basically just raw mm -hmm. ground beef. Right. And they put some other stuff and it was great, but like what is, is there a difference between the meat in other countries versus here? And is that why you can eat it raw or can we eat our meat raw and we just don't know it? <laughs> yeah. So I think, I guess I kind of had the same mindset as you that if I was going to eat raw meat, like I would die. And I, I, <laughs> I personally wouldn't eat raw chicken because I don't think that there's any um, need for that. 
I don't really, I don't eat chicken at all actually, but um, really, yeah, I don't eat it at all. I think it's just not as nutrient dense and yeah, it's really hard to find good quality chicken that doesn't, isn't being pumped of antibiotics and, and all these things. So I just mm-hmm. would rather not. Um, I have a really good meat supplier, red, red beef supply, I guess, a local regenerative farm that do Ninguni cattle. So I get all my stuff from them, but yeah, well, it's exactly what you were saying, right? Like, let's look back on what actually happened, you know, even raw milk, um, you know, right, it was making exactly. people sick in it and it was unsafe because we went from having our animals, small batch, small farmed, one farmer out in the field to then having an increased supply and demand. So then we brought all our cattle inside out of the sun and we know that sun kills bacteria. So now they're in these, I guess, confineries and there's mud everywhere and there's parasites and things because they thrive, you know, in cold, wet, dark environments, <laughs> not in the sun. Um and they're developing all these diseases. So then the milk they were producing was contaminated. The meat they were producing was contaminated. They're going to have parasites. Just like us, if we're not getting sun, we're going to have parasites. Mm-hmm. That's how it works. You don't need to parasite cleanse. You need to get out in the sun. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, so then we had to do things like sterilize our milk and people were getting sick from eggs. But if you have a local supply like you do, it sounds like you have a great one um, for your chickens. And that's the same with me with the eggs. Uh so if you're getting good quality, you have less risk. And I've never been sick not once. Now, in terms of the raw meat, um, yeah, so I eat tartare and I eat um, like raw fish. So I think it's called chiviche or something like mm-hmm. this. You just put a little bit of lemon juice on it. And the tartare generally has like a little bit of lemon juice on it too or um, capaccio. So capaccio is like sliced, uh, I feel it or, you know, whatever you want to use. And then you yeah. kind of put olive oil and some salt on it and maybe, I don't know, some herbs and things and you kind of eat it. Um, in slices and you can put lemon juice on that as well but so it cooks it a little bit but yeah so it is quite raw um, and I love it I think that the first time that I tried it I was kind of saw someone online talking about it and I'm like this is so strange and I think I was like cleaning my mom's house or no I was at my friend's house and I found a cookbook like an Italian cookbook and it was full of raw meat recipes and I was like no way like <laughs> what these like Someone made a cookbook and people were buying it and it was full of raw meat recipes. So that means people were eating raw meat. And I just, I was like, let's try it. You know, my friend, my best friend and I were so curious. So we went out to this, to the butcher and we got this really high quality uh, eye fillet and we cut it up on a plate and we made it look really pretty and then we ate it. And it actually tasted so good. I was Mm. like, it was a bit weird at the start because you're trying to undo that conditioning. It's like the first time you drink raw milk. I remember I just... I couldn't do it for so long. Really? So I, was, I think raw milk tastes exactly the same as as um as pasteurized milk. Oh no, I do not think so. I think it smells huh. so different. Like, well, we grew up on a Jersey farm. So to me, drinking raw milk again, it just smelled like the milk from my childhood, which is mm-hmm. fine. But then it's the conditioning that raw milk's bad for you and all these things. So it took me a while to get get past that. But yeah, so the raw meat, I was kind of like forcing myself to eat it. And then we kind of ate it and we're like, oh, like that was good. You know, it was, you know, it wasn't tough, it was quite tender. And then a couple of hours after, we just had like so much energy. Like it was ridiculous. We, I kid you not, for anyone who wants to try this, capaccio is such a safe dish and tartarius as well. The amount of energy you get from eating raw meat is just ridiculous. Like my friends, my family that have all tried this, they all experience the same thing. It's like this euphoric feeling. And I don't know if it's like ingrained in us, like ancestrally, but yeah, and it's so hydrating, right? Because you're not getting rid of all that water. So what you're actually doing is you're eating a ton of exclusion zone water. So you're eating a lot of structured water that's also pure. So I think that if we were eating raw meat and things like this and actually eating foods that hydrated us, like we used to, we wouldn't actually need to drink as much water either. 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then our modern living, like, you know, depletes our body of water anyway, so we have to drink a lot more water. But so, yeah, I think it's really good for us. It's a lot more uh, nutrient-dense, but then there's also the argument that's like, you know, when you cook your meat, it's easier to digest. But I just don't think that we can outsmart nature like that. I think that eating meat raw is probably the most optimal way in saying that I don't think I could go eat a raw steak or eat sausages or anything like that raw just yet maybe one day I don't I don't think so though touch wood um but yeah definitely eating like tartare which is just like mince kind of like a mince salad with like you know parsley in it olive oil uh you can put gherkins in there things like that it's it's, it's really yum and it's very nourishing and I always feel so good after I mean the first few times that I ate it, I definitely didn't like the didn't like it. I felt like a, a bird eating like scraps or something. <laughs> but then I would just feel so good after. And I found my body was like craving that. Like a two days later, my body would just be thinking about it constantly. I'm like, oh, I don't even like the taste of that, but whatever, I'll eat it. And then eventually I just started liking it. That's so, so interesting. And the tartar, is it just ground beef or is it a specific cut of meat that they ground? Yeah. So I think in some countries that isn't mine that actually care about food quality. Um, it is a specific cut of meat. Um, but I just use, yeah, ground ninguni cattle or I can use steak and I can go through and chop that up really finely into okay. little squares and then I can mix that with different things. But Yeah. Uh, so interesting. Um, all right. So you touched on water. So we'll go into that a little bit if you don't mind. Um, so there is so much information out there about water that we're not drinking enough water. We're drinking too much water. You should only drink water that has salt in it or now there's the structured water or hydrogen water. So mm-hmm. I think we can exclude tap water. Like we know enough about tap water, at least mm-hmm. in the United States, about the added fluoride and and chlorine and all the other things that we don't want. So taking that out of the equation, but outside of that, what are your thoughts on water and how much of it we should be consuming and what type since there are now so many? Yeah, right. So much money in the water industry at the moment. Right, it's um, crazy. Yeah, so I think that, um, yeah, what is a big topic? And I don't want to get too technical, but basically I think that we should be consuming spring water, so mineralized water that comes from springs. Um, there's like some apps and things you can download that can show you and you basically just get a big glass jug and you can go to a local spring and like fill it up. So I think the minerals and things that we need will be from that water. I think that we drink way too much water. As a society, I don't think we should be consuming that much water. I think that we really should be building a relationship with our internal water. Um, and I think that cellular dehydration is a big problem. So, you know, we get used to drinking so much water every day. We get told, you know, two liters a day or else you're going to suffer with dehydration. That's not actually the problem. I don't think our ancestors had big, you know, two liter bottles they were carrying around with them every day. Like, oh, got to finish this before the end of the day. It's like, that's not how it worked. They could go a long time without drinking water. And that's because they had really good quality uh, intrafacial water. Hmm. And so I think the reason we're so dehydrated is because of non-native EMFs. Um, so basically when you put meat into a microwave and you cook it in there for too long or you you, know, you go to defrost, I don't own a microwave anymore, but growing up we'd go to defrost meat. It's like you forgot to take out in the morning, put it in the microwave for a little while and it oscillates the water molecules. And so it's dehydrating, it's bringing all that water out and it's it's speeding up the molecules, making it hot, right? And that's the same thing that's happening to our bodies when we're around laptops, when we're around lots of indoor lighting, when we have our phone in our back pocket, it's actually dehydrating us and causing cellular damage. So we actually can't absorb, well, we're just excreting a lot of water and we're needing a lot more water to, to fix things. Um, I also think that drinking unmineralized water is bad. 
I think that salty water, you know, even just a tiny little bit of salt is good because our mitochondria, um, if you believe in evolution, they evolved in the sea. So um, we're optimized to be able to hydrate through salty water. Um, I think that's an important component. So yeah, drinking salty water or drinking drinking spring water with a little bit of added salt. And I think that Celtic sea salt is great because it's just dried up seawater, I guess. Um, I don't really think it matters if it's it's local to you or not, to be honest. Just like fish, I don't think the fish matters. Like if you know, fish doesn't have to be local either, it's a bit different. But uh yeah. So I think that removing all these uh devices and trying to minimize the amount of Wi-Fi in your home as well, like turning the Wi-Fi off when you're sleeping just really gives yourselves a chance to just hydrate properly. Mm-hmm. You know, those people that, you know, they're like, I'm so thirsty all the time and they drink all this water and then they're just like peeing it out the next second because it's not actually being absorbed by the body. So I think that absorption is like the big issue that we're trying to fix. And we're not really understanding that just because you put something into your body doesn't mean it's making it into the cells. Right. So. Yeah, that's great. Um, all right. A couple more things I wanted to touch on and then we'll wrap up. Um, so specific to women, again, I want to talk about fasting and cold plunges because those are both very popular things, I guess, in the health um, community right now. And there's, mm-hmm. again, a lot of differing opinions on both on whether it's okay for women or if it negatively affects fertility. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, good question. So I guess to pique people's interest, I've actually had women start to do cold therapy who thought they have gone through menopause and they actually get their periods back. Really? So I, yeah. And they're like, Carol, you didn't tell me I was going to get my period back. Like, I just <laughs> want it back. And I'm like, sorry. Oh man. Because having a period is a sign of good health. Right. So yeah, but it definitely needs to be done the right way. Um, I think that again, insulin resist, like a leptin resistance comes into play. So I don't think that Anyone who's leptin resistance, who's already struggling with burning fat, right, should be getting into a big body of cold water because fast may start to really utilize that pathway of like burning fat, right? Like people say that getting cold is so good for weight loss and it is. Um, So yeah, that's very stressful for the body. It's going to drive that cortisol response. And if you're leptin resistant, you're already struggling with high cortisol. So then why would you go and, you know, add fuel to the fire? Yeah. And I think that's the argument. Sorry, I think yeah. that's the argument by a lot of people is that if you're stressing your body both with cold plunging or fasting, then it's not going to be an optimal environment to produce a baby. Mm-hmm. So then it's going to your fertility is going to um, suffer. Um, so just really quick, I meant to ask earlier, is there a test for leptin resistance to see whether that's something that you struggle with or not? Yeah, exactly. And I don't provide any medical advice. I only provide education, but uh, there's a test called RT3. So it's reverse T3. Um, if that is chron- if that is elevated, then that means that you're leptin resistant. Okay. Most predominantly. If you're suffering with, you know, there's some symptoms as well, like we rely so heavily on biochemistry, but if you're suffering with the chronic, like chronic fatigue, you having energy crashes at 2 p.m., you're craving sugar late at night, that's a big one. Um, you're suffering with weight fluctuations, whether that be weight gain, weight loss, you can't lose weight, you can't put on weight, brain fog, these are all common signs of leptin resistance. Okay. Um, and then back to the cold plunges. So you said about doing it the correct way. Is there a specific time within a woman's cycle that they should or should not be doing cold plunges? Yeah. So I think that honestly, um, at the time of ovulation, that's probably not a very good time to be doing doing cold plunges. But um, yeah, so in saying that, 
our ancestors weren't just like, you know, I just can't go outside because it's cold, but they probably wouldn't go and jump in big bodies of cold water like we do today, which is very extreme. So you don't actually have to go jump in an ice bath to get cold. You can just get a piece of ice and like put it around your mouth or you can put it on your wrist where the blood vessels are. You can start with that. You can start with, instead of putting a jumper on when you go for your morning walk, you can take it off and just have a singlet and do a little bit of a shiver walk. Like that's getting cold. You can do cold facial plunges facial plunges you don't have to go and jump in a bucket of icy water you know of course that's going to be stressful for your body especially if you've been living indoors all the time you know you can start by just turning the heat off a little bit more these are all things that can increase you know you getting cold without having to jump in water but I think that the real so everyone says you know it's just about the feel-good hormones after the mental health benefits and you know and then the conversation arises that the stress from the cortisol outweighs the um, then the positives from the feel good and it's just like this addiction right it's just you get addicted to cold there because it makes you feel good and they're actually missing the fundamental component which is it actually reduces it fixes mitochondrial health so everything in our environment is ruining our mitochondrial health when we actually get cold and this is why embracing the seasons is so important you know i know some people that chase the sun so they'll spend you know summer in america and then summer in australia so you never get a winter mm-hmm. it's actually really bad because um yeah, so our mitochondria obviously pass them on to our children and basically keeping it really high level, the getting cold, it basically just shrinks our mitochondria and makes it run really more efficiently. And so when our mitochondria starts to become, it changes its shape due to like toxins and, and inability to repair and things like this. And there's actually a big link between that and things like autism and a spectrum disorders in children. Hmm. So getting cold and le- leading into the season, that actually reduces... Uh, I guess, yeah, the mutations and it and it shrinks our mitochondria. And so I'm trying to really keep this high level so it's quite hard for me. But then, yeah, so this happens naturally too. Like in summer, our mitochondria expand, but then in winter they shrink back down and they get this like tight shape. So that traditionally would have always been happening. And, and the work of Dr. Doug Wallace, he showed that the mitochondria will increase in size by 10% every 10 years after 26 but now with the introduction of, I guess, artificial lighting and non-native BMFs, this is actually happening quite sooner. And so if you your mitochondria are already quite swollen and then you pass them on to your children, like that's not a good thing. So mm-hmm. getting cold, I think, for people who are looking to optimise their fertility, I think that reversing leptin uh, resistance is the first step. And cold can also r- rapidly reverse leptin resistance but it just has to be done like let's say we look at bringing down your life stress and we get you eating you know the same time every day three meals a day no snacking for three weeks and then maybe we'll start doing some cold facial plunges maybe we'll get you in a cold water bath um and that really is it i guess under the direction of your practitioner because i've seen people like uh who have diabetes see this stuff online and they go and jump in an ice bath and now they're chronically elevated they are blood pressure has been chronically elevated for the last two months and it just won't come down. So it is really important, like you said, to do it the right way. Um, But yeah, so getting cold really is needed in today's society to ensure the health of our children. Yeah. And that, that honestly makes a lot more sense to me, just how you phrased it about like just getting closer to nature in your own environment and embracing the different seasons and allowing your body to get cold and probably allowing your body to get hot and sweaty. 
um, instead of just like the consistent 70 degrees all the time that we were talking about. Because yeah, mm -hmm. if you're like aiming for a more ancestral way of living, like you said, I can't imagine our ancestors ever electing to like break the ice on a pond and jump in. Like there just would have been <laughs> yeah, no they were like, reason no, to do that. Idea. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that makes a lot more sense to me. Um, and then about fasting, is that something that you would recommend to people or no? Yeah, see, fasting is kind of the same thing. I believe that it's like super hyped and it's like, go on this three-day fast and do this and that. But like, they don't understand that if someone's leptin resistant, they should not be fasting at all. That's going to completely destroy their hormonal health. You need to be leptin sensitive first. So actually being able to use your own body fat as fuel, right? Because that's what you're trying to do when you're fasting. Now, if you can't do that, it's going to be extremely, extremely stressful for your body. So you need to be leptin sensitive first. Um, you can't get out of it. You have to do the work to become mm -hmm. leptin sensitive, unfortunately. And then I think that fasting can be good um, for like, let's say one or two days here and there, depending if you're a mother or not, if you're breastfeeding or not. I don't think that people who are breastfeeding should be fasting. Um, do I think that fasting is a great way to increase mitochondrial health because it promotes cell repair um, and stem cells before uh, pregnancy? I think it's great. I think it's something everyone should be doing. But we also forget that, you know, fasting can literally just be having your last meal at three o'clock, fasting overnight, having breakfast in the morning. I right. think, you know, that's so great. I think that's a great time for you to fast. And if you did that every day, that would be enough. Like that becomes your routine. That's what I do. And I feel great. Um, and that's what I get my my clients to, uh, to aim for. Mm -hmm. So I think the traditional fasting is like, you know, you eat your last meal, you go to bed, doesn't matter what time you eat it, and then you wake up and you don't have breakfast and then you fast all day, which is actually really bad because uh, we get this rise in cortisol in the morning, which wakes us up. But then when we eat, this cortisol goes back down because we use cortisol to break down protein. Mm -hmm. And then also, you know, it should just come back down naturally a little bit. So, um, I mean, it becomes too high. You know, most of us have really high cortisol. That's how people feel sick when they wake up in the morning. But um, so, yeah, if you have a really high protein breakfast, it's going to bring the cortisol back down um, and signal that to your body that like you're safe, you're fed, you're nourished, you know, mm -hmm. you can make your fertility hormones because if our cortisol is too high, we actually won't make our fertility hormones. Our pregnenolone actually gets diverted to make more cortisol to keep us safe. So if you do fasting and you don't have breakfast and you instead um, decide to fast from waking up, and not having that breakfast, especially if you're used to having breakfast, that's going to drive your cortisol response like way, way up and make fasting so much harder than it needs to be and ruin your hormonal health. So I'm a very big advocate for fasting. I just, overnight fasting, I just think that we need to be pulling our dinner back earlier and then we still need to be having our breakfast as well. I don't think okay. you should be drinking coffee on an empty stomach just to fast of a morning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of research that says you should not ever be drinking coffee on an empty stomach regardless. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Mm -hmm. All right. Last question. Um, there are obviously so many biohacking tools out there now, and I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on, are these just more ways for people to make money or are they actually beneficial or, you know, my personal thoughts on it without having, you know, I don't know any of the research on it. Just my personal is something like, a red light therapy bed, I would imagine that it's just as good to be in the sun. But if you don't have access to that for whatever reason, then this could be a potential um, alternative. Same with grounding mats. If you, for whatever reason, can't get outside and actually stand on the ground often enough, maybe that's a potential benefit. But what are your thoughts? Like, are the, is there anything that's better about any of these tools than just what we can find in nature? 
Yeah, so I agree with you. I think that, um, I mean, if you're not prescribing supplements, you know, someone would come to you and they're like, I have X, Y, Z, and you go, okay, buy my $100 worth of supplements. So that's kind of like where that person's getting their money from. Mm -hmm. I think that the supplements have been supplemented for biohacking tools uh, in this quantum space. I don't think you actually need a lot of them. And in some cases, I think they're quite bad. You know, for example, let's just take what we've learned about today and people have these sauna blankets, like these sauna yeah. blankets they wrap themselves in in the morning and then that gives them like, you know, infrared light. But there's wires in that blanket. And so that's actually diminishing the exclusion zone water because Gerald Pollock, they put a Wi-Fi router next to this structured water and it completely collapsed it. Hmm. So they're telling you that you need, you need this red light to you know, when you to structure your water, but then it's also ruining your health by having all this non-native EMF on you when yeah. you could just go outside and watch the sunrise. Right. So, you know, it just depends um, what what's, what illness you have as well. Because if you're someone like, let's say, who's 50, that's from India, that's been, you know, lived in the UK your whole life, perhaps maybe getting a spurty lamp and getting a, a red light device. And I'm a big advocate for the ones that are like, you know, the EMR tech that's two meters away from you, right. very high powered. So you're not getting the EMF, but you're getting the infrared light. That might be something that you need to do because you're so light deficient. So it just depends like who you are and what you need. Um, if you're an office worker, I think getting an infrared light and putting it like in your office is great because then you're adding that red back in with the blue. Mm-hmm. Nature always has this balance between the two. Um, I think that hypertonic minerals are great. I think that Celtic sea salt's great. I think, uh, yeah, I think they're all good things. Um, I'm not a big fan of like aura rings or anything like that. I think we really need to go back to just thinking about how we actually feel and connecting in with our body and being like, okay, how do I actually feel when I do this? How do I feel when I wake up? Not being like, how do I feel when I wake up? Oh, I'm going to check this app on my phone that tells me. Right, like, <laughs> right, exactly. So chaotic to me, but yeah. Um, I think the only device that I actually use is a red light and uh, my, I don't actually have it at the moment. My client has it. But other than that, I just have my red light bulbs for nighttime mm-hmm. and I have blue light looking glasses. I think that's really important. Um, if you're living you know, in a share house or you know, your family's not on board with turning the blue lights off, really good tool. Even the yellow ones, you know, if you're going into a shopping center, you might want to put them on because the blue light's just too bright. But mm-hmm. other than glasses, red light, I think everyone should have red light. And just getting some minerals, I don't think that there's too much more that you should really be buying. It's yeah. just, yeah. All right, good to know. Well, Kara, I have so enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. Um, can you tell everybody where they can find you, where they can connect with you, and then what um, offerings you have out there right now? Yeah, of course. Thank you. It's been so fun. I hope I haven't bored you too much. <laughs> no, I, my gosh. I like literally had goosebumps to, for some of the parts of this conversation. I love this stuff. Okay, that's good. That's yeah. good. Um, hopefully your audience likes it too. But yes. yeah, so I'm pretty active over on Instagram. So it's like Curly Wellness. Um, uh, yeah, Curly Wellness. I was going to say at gmail.com. That's my, um, that's not even my email. I don't know. Oh, you got a new about. one. <laughs> yeah, so it's like Kira at curlywellness.com. My business actually became a company yesterday. So that's really exciting. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Exciting things coming. So my offerings are, I offer one-on-one coaching. So I I don't like to take on too many one-on-one clients just because I like to preserve my time for those who really, really need it. Um, and it's quite a more, I guess, less affordable option. So if you're struggling with things like infertility or a chronic disease, then perhaps one-on-one coaching is for you. 
but I've just launched group coaching. So that's super affordable. It's like, you know, everyone can jump in there. It's it's actually so great. I'm really enjoying it so much and and seeing all the people who are crazy connect with each other and realize that they're not crazy. And there's <laughs> yeah. like many other people out there that think the same way. So that's actually been really super fun, jumping on Zoom calls, you know, doing drop-ins. And I'm really big on education too. I believe that a lot of uh, the problems in today can in today's health society can be solved with education. And I think that's such a missing component. So I don't so much as tell you exactly what to do, but I will give you the information needed so that you can like figure out what to do yourself. And whether you live here or if you live in America, you can kind of have the knowledge to counteract your environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's excellent. All right. Well, thank you so much. I so appreciate it. That's okay. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please click to follow the show and I would love it if you could leave a review. Also, if you have a friend who you think might enjoy this episode, please send them the link. Thank you again. See you next time.